0: topic tonight is the law and the gospel. And as I've been uh, considering this topic, I've I've thought honestly that, uh, you know, oftentimes our problem with the law is that there's honestly a problem with the law. And there are some pretty crazy laws out there. I have a book that outlines some of them, and um, it's kind of amusing to me. Uh, These are true laws in International Falls, Minnesota, it actually, they actually forbid cats to chase dogs up telephone poles. That's true. It's on the books to, th- to this day. In Memphis, Tennessee, it is actually still on the books that it's against the law for a woman to drive a car unless a man is running or walking in front of it waving a red flag to warn approaching motorists and pedestrians. In Lebanon, Tennessee, it is the law that a husband cannot kick a wife out of bed even if her feet are cold. But a wife can kick a husband out of bed any time for any reason whatsoever. And uh, I'm sure every husband already knows that anyway. <laughs> But as we look at God's law, um, the truth is that our, our problem isn't because there's a problem with the law. Our problem is because there's a problem with us. There's a problem with how we relate to the law. 1 Timothy 1.8 says this. Paul says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Or a uh, literal translation would be if one uses it lawfully. The law, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And when he's talking about the law there, it's not just that he's talking about the ceremonial law or, or the civil, civil law of the Old Testament. He's at the very least including the moral law when he says that, the ethics of the Old Testament. Because in verses 9 and 10 that follow that, he, he makes a list of moral or ethical sins. And even in that list, he follows the order of Exodus 20, which he does another, on other occasions as well. So at the very least, when Paul says that, he's including the moral law. And and what he's saying then is that you, we, we can actually be keeping or trying to keep even the moral law, even the ethics that we find in the Bible, and to do it in a way that's unlawful, in a way that is actually disobedient, in a way that doesn't actually count. And so tonight, as, as we go through this together, I want us to, uh, to reflect on how the law is good, but how we often abuse it or, or misuse it. Now, if, if I were speaking to a group of, of, um, of new Christians or uh, inexperienced Christians, uh, it would be a whole different uh, lecture. Uh, if, it weren't for, if it weren't a group of seasoned Christians like yourselves, then I would probably talk about the misuse and the abuse of the law by degrading the law, by not taking it seriously, um, by despising God's law, by being licentious. But for our purposes tonight, with experienced believers, what I want to focus on is how we misuse and abuse the law by actually turning it into our gospel. By confusing the law with the gospel. By making the law our good news instead of what Christ has done for us. And that in doing that, when we confuse the law with the gospel, you lose both. You not only lose the gospel, but you lose the law as well. Now how does that work? What does that look like? You have an outline before you tonight. And the first thing is that we do that. We keep the law unlawfully or we pursue the law unlawfully through our mistaken expectations of the law, thereby capsizing the law. And that is that we, that we look to the law, we expect it to secure for us the righteousness that only the gospel can secure. And when you load the law with that kind of burden that it was never meant to have, it's like, it's like overloading a boat with a load that it's never been meant to carry and you just capsize the boat and we do that with the law, mistaken expectations and when I talk about this, what I'm talking about is what I would call functional or practical legalism and in talking about legalism uh, what I mean is not uh, a zeal for the law or a passion for a law. Legalism isn't that we're passionate about the law. The Apostle Paul was certainly passionate about the law. Jesus himself was zealous for the law of God. So I'm not talking about being zealous for God's law as legalism, but practical legalism or legalism in the sense of using the law of God in order to prove our goodness using it to to make ourselves righteous in, in our own eyes, to make ourselves right in the eyes of other people and in the eyes of God. So what I'm talking about when I talk about legalism is that instinct we have to use the law, to use rules to prove our own goodness. Now, um, I I dare say that is instinctive. I was in Africa uh, with some missionaries recently. We were in Senegal, Africa, and uh, uh, some friends of mine and I, along with World Harvest, uh, part of the kind of thing we're doing tonight. And uh, one of our introductions to that culture, which none of us have ever experienced before, was the way they eat. And we sat down for our first meal, and they put a large bowl out in the middle of the room, and that bowl was filled with rice and all kinds of other goodies I couldn't identify, with some large pieces of fish um, and, and meat in the middle of that bowl. And, and, and then we were each given forks, and you sit around the bowl, and, and you each have at it, and they call it the common bowl. And none of us, being familiar with that, of course, found it strange from the start and were a little uncomfortable, but what was really interesting was the, was the instinctive reaction that we all had. And what do you think that was? I mean, instinctively, what do you think the first thing was that we wanted to know? And, and what that was was everybody wanted to know the rules. Mm. We wanted to know what the rules were for the I mean, and we were... Um, anxious about the fact that, that maybe we were going to have to do this and be introduced to this culture without knowing what the rules were. We wanted to know you know, uh, how you use your fork. We wanted to know if everybody had their own certain quadrant of that bowl that you stay in. How do you, how do you um, separate that meat and fish in the middle with, with each other when you've already had your fork in your mouth? Is it okay to steal something from someone else's uh, other part of the bowl, which somebody did that night. And became a forgiveness issue for me. Um, but, all these questions were coming in our minds, and what was there is our hearts immediately wanted to know the rules so that we could prove our our, our our Senegalese goodness, that we could prove our missionary righteousness, that we could know that by keeping the rules we were okay, that we were good people. It's instinctive for us. Now, the fact of the matter is, I pursue this kind of self-generated righteousness in every area of my life, and I dare say you do too. I, I pursue husband righteousness, parenting righteousness speaker righteousness, my concern even for doing this tonight. I, I pursue driving righteousness. I mean, just about every area of my life, I want to know the rules so I, can, so I can prove my goodness. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about legalism. Now, probably the weirdest thing was um, last fall when I was in a, another co- uh, Sonship conference like this, I found out I even have bathroom righteousness. <laughs> I was getting ready to, to speak um, on this very topic and uh, it was uh, sometime before that and I went out into the hall and wanted to use, the, needed to use the bathroom uh, before the time came and on the way there they had this table with snacks and different kinds of drinks and there was some apple juice there and I grabbed some apple juice as I ran off to the bathroom. And I uh, got in there, and uh, th- there was a stall uh, free. That was the only part. It was pretty crowded in there and being in between sessions. And, and I, uh, I went in and uh, began to be in process, you might say, and uh, put the apple juice down on a windowsill that was in beside the, the area of the stall. And uh, somehow turned around and banged it with my elbow, knocking it onto the floor, and it busted and I, and I turned around, and, and all I could think was, oh no, You know, I broke the glass, I'm going to have to clean this up, how am I going to make it in time for, for the next lecture, and, and, and all that. And then suddenly, another thought hit me, and I began to panic. I thought, there's people all, all over this bathroom, and what is leaking out of there is yellow. <laughs> I couldn't do anything, because I was in process. <laughs> But I'm watching this yellow stuff trickling down to the next stall, going under the area, into the next stall where somebody is occupying, and out the door, and all I can think is, what are these people going to think of me? They're going to think I'm some kind of pig, you know, that I have no self-control whatsoever, and everything within me just wanted to yell out, it's only apple juice! I've got to prove my bathroom goodness! <laughs> That's what I'm talking about when I talk about this functional or practical legalism, this trying to prove our goodness um, by knowing and keeping the rules. And, and so as you think of your own life, what, what are some of the telltale signs that this takes place in your life and, and in my life? I think um, a few of them are these. How do we expect the law um, to give us and to secure us the righteousness that only the gospel really secures us? Well, one thing I think is that you'll see a need for credit. That your righteousness, your good deeds, your right acts are going to have to be known by other people. They're going to have to. Your goodness must be acknowledged by other people. You're going to see that tendency. Now, one of the laws that the Bible gives is uh, in Ephesians five, when uh, Scripture tells me that I, as a husband, am to love my wife as Christ loves the church. Well, there was uh, one day not long ago where um, I was alone in the kitchen and and I went to put. Uh, um, uh, some of the dishes away in the dishwasher and I noticed uh, that on the outside of the dishwasher was getting kind of grimy. It was getting a little dirty. And as I, I bent down to, get, to close it and I saw that, uh, the first thing I thought, you know, typical husband was, boy, Peggy should do something about this, you know. And, uh, and, then, I, and then I noticed that there was a sponge uh, on the outside of the sink nearby and I had this, you know, unique thought. I thought, well, maybe I could do it. You know, and so, so, I grabbed the sponge and I began cleaning the outside of the dishwasher, and and, and I started feeling really good about it. You know, and this felt like a holy thing. I thought Peggy will, you know, she'll never know this. I just did it for her, and it really was one of those rare holy serving your wife moments. You know, but then I found, um, to my to my surprise, shock and, and chagrin, really, three times that week I found myself mentioning it to Peggy three times. And the third time I heard the cock crow outside, you know, the rooster. But that's, that's um, that drive within me to prove my goodness and to do that it has to be acknowledged by other people, doesn't it? And so you will see that the need for, for, for having credit and getting credit in your life to prove your goodness. But another thing is there will be a sign, a telltale sign of defensiveness. One of the laws uh, that the Bible gives is uh, the scripture says study to show yourself approved. And that's something that's important to me, too. And uh, uh, I have had a Bible for many, many years. This Bible uh, is a Bible that I love. It's well-worn. Um, and I've gotten a lot of Bible righteousness through this Bible. Because you know how we think, right? You know how much a man studies his Bible by how well-worn it is, how written it is, and, you know how much writing is in there, and how much underlining and marking is in there. And a good Christian studies his Bible. And a real studier of the Bible is gonna have an old, tattered looking Bible, aren't they? So I mean, I love this Bible, it's so hard to get rid of, but you know, I've been growing and learning that you don't need Bible righteousness by the way your Bible looks. And so, someone uh, uh, came up to me, someone here tonight, and said, you know, I want to I want to fix your Bible for you. I'm going to re- redo it and recover it and rebind it, and which she's done, and I, I appreciate it. But when she said this, I felt that, you know, that real um, holy thing of, I don't need Bible righteousness. Okay, I'll just get rid of this Bible. I'll get a new Bible. And I even told her very nobly at that time anyway, I, I don't, you know, it's fine. I don't need it. And I went out and I bought a new Bible Bible. it was no more than a week later with this new Bible that I sat down to dinner with one of our leaders it was a dinner after church and we were sitting down and I, I got there late after preaching and sat down on my meal and I took this Bible and put it up on the table started eating and this leader turns to me and, and starts looking at my Bible and flipping through it and all of a sudden he says you know there's not much writing in this Bible <laughs> he says you know my dad he really studied his Bible his Bible was full of notes and, and markings, and, and uh, it was well worn and tattered. My I respect my dad and I found myself saying immediately, "Well, you should have seen my old Bible." And I and I was thinking in my mind I, I didn't have the guts to say this. I was thinking in my mind, I'm sure it had more than your dad. You know, <laughs> it's probably Greek and Hebrew stuff in my Bible. You know, <laughs> that need for Bible righteousness, the defensiveness immediately to prove, to prove my goodness. But I, I think another telltale sign is um, a fixation with comparison. I was um, with a, a, a friend of mine once and uh, we were uh, talking about some discipling things and uh, he was inviting me to uh, speak into his life a little bit and to uh, help him see some things that were going on and uh, one of the things I shared with him was I said you know brother I think one of the things God might want to work with you on one place that you can probably grow is that you're really critical and um, I think God would really want to help you with that critical spirit and I, and I think, you know, it really brought some conviction. And one of the ways I know that is um, immediately he said, he said, well, um, that, that may be true. And you could tell he was a little, a little hit by it. He said, but don't you think I'm at least better than the gays? And I said, man, brother, you just, you just brought critical spirit to a whole new level, you know. I, and, and you know what was happening with him is what I experienced too. And that is when the law begins to convict you, when law begins to come to your heart, the first thing you want to do is cry out for rescue. And one of the ways we do that is we cry out for rescue from the law itself. And how do you do that? You do that by comparing yourself with others. And what he was saying is, you know, the law of being judgmental and critical may be bad. And it may, and it may not prove my goodness. But at least if I compare myself to others, if I think of others that I consider worse than myself then the law will be able to prove my goodness somehow and I'll be rescued and I'll be able to fi- secure a righteousness that, I, that I'm not believing I can find in Christ, you see? And um, the interesting thing is that even as that happened, I began to feel in my own heart at least I'm better than this guy. Because I immediately thought, you know, I would, never, I would never think like that, you know? Or at least I wouldn't say something like that out loud. And, and, and there you find my, you know, my own penchant for um, that comparative righteousness. And, and that's what we'll do. We'll look to, to prove our goodness by comparing ourselves to others. That'll be another telltale sign. And then a last telltale sign, I think, would, is a reputation fixation. Um, one of the things that uh, uh, I've found uh, since getting back here the last couple of weeks is um, there's been just this wave or parade of people complaining and, and criticism. And that happens every now and then in ministry and just happens to be one of those waves going on right now. And I was with um, one of our staff this morning, Colin, and sharing how that has discouraged me. It's just gotten my spirit down and it's just gotten a hold of my heart. Um, and, and it does that on a periodic basis. You know, When there's too much criticism or too much complaining, it just gets a hold of my heart. And, and, my, and my question is, why is that? You know, why, why would that complaining and criticism so um, capture my joy in Christ? And, and the reason is, is this, that um, my performance isn't proving my righteousness. My performance isn't securing um, my righteousness, isn't proving my goodness. And as people are pointing that out, as people are complaining, it begins to pull the rug out of that, that practical legalism, that functional legalism that's in my life. And I'd like you to just think about how that works in your life, too. Because I hope you see that um, what I'm talking about, um, there's something wrong with that. You know, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to be laboring here is that unlawful law-keeping that you and I fall into all the time. And that there is something desperately wrong with that. That, that, it's, that it's a moralistic approach to religion instead of that which Christianity is supposed to be. And it's supposed to be something incredibly different between Christianity and moralistic religions such as Islam or Mormonism or something else like that. That when I do this, I'm basically reducing Christianity to a self-improvement program. And so, um, I think, um, you know, there's a desperate need in my life to remember how passionately Paul attacked that kind of unlawful law-keeping how he just zeroed in on it in places like Romans chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 when he says therefore no one will be declared righteous by observing the law but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known and that's the gospel and in Galatians 2.21 when Paul says I do not set aside the grace of God for if a righteousness could be gained through the law then Christ died for nothing and so what I would be inviting us all to tonight is, is a repentance. You know, that there's a repentance issue here. And I don't just mean like this one-time experience of repentance that I need, but what I'm saying by all the examples I'm giving you are, are their current examples in my life. And, and therefore, there's an ongoing, daily, constant need of repentance in my life in this area. And when I say repentance, what I, what I mean is that... Um, that I need to understand and question not only am I keeping God's law, but I need to question why am I keeping God's law? Why am I trying to keep God's law? I mean, what am I trying to do with that? Am I trying to create a righteousness that's self-generated? Am I trying to prove my goodness by the law? Am I trying to secure what only the gospel can, can give me and thereby confusing the two and losing both of them? Older um, theologians used to talk about two kinds of repentance. I mean the, the theologians from hundreds of years ago. They used to talk about the need to repent of your unrighteousness, but also you need to repent of your righteousness. And uh, Tim Keller, a uh, pastor up in New York, puts it this way. He, he says, we need to not only repent of what makes us bad, but we need to repent of anything we look to in dependency to make us good other than God. And that includes of a dependency upon the law, a looking to the law in the, in the wrong way. He, um, he also um, says that uh, um, we've got to understand that when we are doing this, we're falling into a moralism instead of um, the power of what Christianity is. And so, what I would call you to, and call myself to, is not only a repentance then, but also a faith. To believe the gospel. To believe that in the gospel, uh, we have everything that we need. And that as I fall into this kind of practical legalism, this mistaken expectation that capsizes the law, that when I do that, I'm basically asking the law to be my Jesus. I'm saying, law, you know, rescue me. Save me from my sin. Make me non-condemnable, make me worthy, make me, make me somebody, make me good, make me lovable, make me non-condemnable, which is something that the, only the gospel can do. I'm turning the, the law into my Jesus. And yet, it's the gospel that says, as it, for example, in Romans 10.4, where Paul says, Christ is the end of the law, so that righteousness for every, may, may be for everyone who believes. And what the Gospel says is that I don't need to get righteousness from the law because I already have it in Christ. And that, the, and that Christ frees me from that need to get righteousness from, my, from the law. And therefore, I can love the law and pursue the law and look to the law and instead of, instead of depending on it to create some kind of righteousness of my own, instead I can have a passion for the law simply because it reflects the righteousness of God. Instead of trying to use the law to prove my own goodness, I can instead have a passion for the law because it's God's goodness and because I'm caught up in His goodness, you see. There's a big difference between those two things. So, mistaken expectations that end up capsizing the law. Okay, second on your outline we also keep the law unlawfully, have an unlawful observance of the law through our misunderstood diagnosis, and thereby we trivialize the law. And what I'm doing is I'm being rather Trinitarian about this. We not only look to the law to be our Jesus, but we also look to the law to be our Holy Spirit. And the first way that we do that is that we give the law a power that it was never meant to have, that that we look to it for a power to change us. And the law was never meant to have that kind of power. We, we tend to think, I tend to think, that if I just know the right thing and do the right thing, that that's equivalent to transformation. And, and, and thereby, I depend upon the law to do something that only the Holy Spirit was meant to do. Only the Holy Spirit is meant to be the power for transformation and the power for change in our lives. And I think there's several problems with that way of thinking, with that way of approaching the Christian life. And the first is this, that when we do that, the first problem is we misunderstand the role that the law was meant to have. Galatians three twenty four. Paul says this, he says, The law was put in charge, why? To lead us to Christ. And in verse 21, the latter half of that, he also writes, For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. And by by saying that, he's saying, and it doesn't. It comes by the gospel. It comes by the Spirit. It was never meant to come by the law. Life and righteousness cannot come that way. Change and transformation cannot be made that way. And so um, what I'm saying is that the problem is that we've got to recognize that the law has no power in itself to do what it's describing. It describes to us what change looks like or the result of change or what fruit will look like, but it doesn't have the power to get us there. Um, I recently put together um, a basketball goal for for my kids. Uh, We just completed our driveway after many years. uh, One of the things we've been looking forward to was was being able to play basketball in the driveway with my girls. And uh, so for Christmas we bought them this basketball goal, and it's taken me this long to get to putting it together. And one of the reasons is that it comes with this complicated set of directions like everything you can possibly buy, right? And, and here's the thing I had those directions the directions told me what the goal was supposed to look like how you're supposed to do it and how you're supposed to go about doing it it gave me directions but there was no power you know I sat there looking at the direction for months and months and months and the basketball goal never went up and that's because there's no power in the directions to get it there. That takes me, that takes my energy and, uh, and my prowess with uh, tools, and, uh, which is really a lack thereof, to, to get us there. And it's the same thing with the Christian life. The law gives you a set of directions. It describes what righteousness looks like as it bears its fruit. It describes the character of God. It describes the character that God is bringing us up to. But it doesn't have the power to get us there. It's like the directions. Another example example is uh, um, my, my, my wife and daughter uh, are at a horse rally in South Carolina tonight and uh, they uh, didn't really uh, know the directions to get to the house where they were going to be staying so they had to call for directions and make a little map of it and and of course once they had the map they didn't confuse the map with the destination. The map describes the destination and how to get there but it really took getting in the car and the car being the vehicle, or actually in this case our Ford pickup truck and, and a horse trailer behind it, in order to get them there. There's a difference between the map and the power of the vehicle that gets you to that destination. The law is like the map. But we can't confuse it with the vehicle that gets us to that destination or we, or we end up losing what both are really all about. And, uh, and again, old theologians had this down and several of, several of them write about the law being like a mirror. The law is like a mirror. It shows you your dirty face, but it has no power to clean your face. That takes something else. That takes soap or a washcloth in order to do that some more uh, modern teachers use the example of an x-ray and they say the law is like an x-ray it'll show you problems that that are within it'll show you broken bones my wife hurt her back and just found out today from one of our friends took some x-rays and found out that she's fractured one of the bones in, in her back and that's why she's having all the pain but the fact that they did the x-ray didn't make her better it takes something else to heal it takes something else some other power to make her better which is going to be a lot of work and a lot of other things but it's, a, it's the same way with the law. The law is an x-ray that can show you the brokenness, that can show you the places where we need to grow, but it's not going to have the power to heal you or get you there. So that's the first problem is we misunderstand the role. But the se- a second problem that I see is that um, there's a suspect motive when we look to the law in this way to change us, a suspect motive. I have um, a friend that's a district attorney in a city, And um, he once said to me, you know, Dave, and we were talking about law and um, and, and the need to uphold law and to be uh, in law enforcement. And he said, you know, what breaks my heart is that those of us in law enforcement in this city don't really love the law. We love the power that the law gives us. And there's a big difference between the two. And I think that the second problem that I see is that there's a suspect motive in, wh- in why we want to use the law as the power to change. And, and, and the problem in my life is that I don't really love the law, I love the power that the law gives me. What I want is control. What I want to be in, is, is to be involved in this spiritual self-management, so that I'm on top of things, and so that really, ultimately, I get the credit. And here's what happens: if I, when I begin to think that change equals law keeping, then it allows me to really be the spirit of my life, to be the Holy Spirit of my own life. And and I begin to view the law, actually, as the spirit, instead of seeing the difference between between the two and and, and acknowledging that and living by that. I get involved in in sin management instead of what's true Christianity. A third problem that I see is that it misses the target. That when when, uh, law-keeping equals transformation, I'm forgetting what God's real target is. You know, Jesus clearly taught That everything that comes out of our life, our behavior, issues from our heart. And that the real target is the heart. He said that all of the law can be summed up in a single commandment. That is to love your neighbor as yourself. But first, he said, it's to love God with all your heart, right? God's real target is the heart. Man looks on the outer appearance, but God looks upon the heart, right? And I miss that when I begin thinking that, that um, transformation is just by law-keeping. I forget that the real target God has is the heart. And, and here's the thing. The law cannot touch my heart. Only the Holy Spirit can touch my heart. Only the Holy Spirit can change my heart. Fourth problem and uh, last problem that uh, I've been thinking for this purpose is, is that it underestimates the flesh. It underestimates the flesh. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4 says, um, talks about the, the, um, the, the limits of the law when Paul says, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature or a more literal translation, a better translation, I think, in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son. God had to solve my problem for change, my problem with sin, by something other than the law, because the law is limited by the power of my flesh. And therefore, God had to send His own Son in order to bring about what needed to happen. I was at an amusement uh, place one time with my girls when they were li- little, and I was, I was captivated by this one particular old-fashioned um, amusement. And uh, what it was is, is uh, you, you pick up this mallet And uh, in front of you is a whole board, uh, a large board with holes in it. And as you stand there, um, a little gopher pops up out of the hole. And and the idea is that you're supposed to grab this mallet and hit the gopher before it goes back down again. And if you do, you get a point or something like that. You get enough points and you get a prize, right? Um, Probably a crayon or something. You know how it works. thousand points and you get this little trinket. But, so, so we're there pounding away on this thing, especially when I look so goofy standing there, because what happens is you go to pound one gopher, and then what happens? Another gopher pops up, and pretty soon these gopher's popping up all over the place, and I'm standing there like a madman trying to pound these gophers away. And I remember thinking, even as I was doing it, you know, this is a good illustration of my life, my Christian life. I, I'm, you know, As I go about this sin management attempt, of, um, of change in my own power. It's like I try to pop down one gopher, one flesh gopher with a mallet of the law, and what happens? There's another one popping up. And they're popping up all over the place. And, and what I need to recognize is that, that it's, it's out of my control. <laughs> you know, my, my flesh is n- enough of a problem that I can't give myself to sin management without there being some sort of insanity to it. So there's problems with that. But I not only, and I think as I deal with other people, it's the same for them, I not only um, give the, power, the, the law a power that it doesn't have, but in that process, I deny it the power that it really does have. Those two things go together. And what do I mean by that? Uh, what I mean is that the law was meant to have a power to drive us to Jesus Christ. The law was meant to have a power to cause us to have a dependency upon the Holy Spirit for change. And when I do this um, law-keeping equals tr- um, transformation thing, I'm denying it the very power that it really was meant to have. And what I mean by that is that I end up triv- trivializing the law by reducing it to a spiritual makeover. That's one way that I do that. I reduce it to basically some sort of talk show spiritual makeover. And, and I settle for a superficiality, and externalism, that was never meant to be. And what I'm talking about is is when Jesus talked about how we are white, how we settle for being whitewashed tombs, or um, when Jesus talks about cleaning the outside of the cup and being satisfied with that instead of instead of being concerned with the inside of the cup, which only the Holy Spirit can touch. When I was um, when I went to that conference last fall, the Sunship conference last fall, um, my wife. Uh, very nicely, as she often does, very thoughtfully uh, presented me with a gift as I was about to go. And I opened the gift, and it was one of those moments of I'm um, really glad that you're so thoughtful, and yet I'm not really sure I want this thing, you know. And I opened it; uh, it was a pair of, of new pajamas. And, uh, and and the reason I was uncomfortable with that, I said, I said, Peggy, you know, I don't I don't know if I want to wear these because you know I'm going to be rooming with a guy for for this week. And you know I think the cool thing, the macho thing, I don't want to look like a sissy, is what I was saying. You know I think maybe I should just wear boxers and a T-shirt or something like that, you know, and she's got these nice pJs and I didn't want to say anything, but I said, "You know, look, you know I'm going to be with a guy. I'm not sure you know I should do this and and with and, and to total seriousness, she looks at me in the eye and she says, "Yeah, but what if there's a fire?" <laughs> and I thought you know, what planet are you from? I, and, and I had this vision run through my head that there's a fire in the hotel. People are screaming and running through the hall, burning bodies everywhere. I have to jump out of the fourth-story window, but I look good because I have new PJs. And, and, you know, you heard the same thing with your mom. You have to change your underwear because you might, what if you're in a car accident? Or you have to have socks without holes. I, you know, what does that thinking come from? But you know what? I mean, that's how, I, that's how we are spiritually. We are so concerned for our spiritual PJs because we're so caught up in that we look good. And the truth of the matter is that you and I are more concerned with looking good than actually truly being good. And, you know, we could have as the motto um, written over our entire lives... You know, the North Carolina state motto is, is this, um, to be and not to seem. I think that's awesome. But you know, the motto that could be written over a lot of my life, and uh, uh, much of the time, would be the opposite of that. To seem and not to be. Appearance isn't everything. It's the only thing, right? And if you think that's not true, just think about this for a minute. Just think about how that works in our lives. Let me ask you this. Are you more bothered... Are you more bothered by failing the law or by being caught failing the law? I mean, what's the truth? Are you, more, are you more bothered that you've sinned or that you've been seen sinning? And what I'm talking about is a trivialization of the law by giving ourselves over to an externalism. You see? And let me ask you a few other questions. Um, guys, husbands, are you more bothered that you're looking at another woman or that your wife catches you looking at another woman. Men, are you more bothered that in the checkout counter line you're glancing at some of the covers of those magazines or that people really notice that you're glancing at some of those checkout counter magazines? Are we more bothered that people notice that our kids are sinners even more than the fact that they really are sinners? Are we, aren't we more bothered when people can really tell that our marriage isn't perfect than the fact that it really isn't perfect? I, I, mean, I had a recent experience of that when we were at a dinner with some, with some other folks from the church and, uh, and, uh, and we had a disagreement about when to leave and actually got mad at each other in front of them and weren't able to hide it. And I'll tell you the truth, I was much more bothered by the fact that it showed that we weren't getting along than that we weren't getting along. You understand? More bothered... Uh, by being seen sinning than the sin itself more bothered um, about being caught failing the law than actually that I failed the law how about for you doesn't it bother you more that people really can tell you're unhappy than that you really are or depressed or angry or joyless it does for me It really bothers me when someone tells that there's no joy in my preaching, when they can really see it than that there's no joy in my preaching. If you can't tell, it's not so bad, right? (laughs) Doesn't it bother us more that we can no longer hide that we drink too much or eat too much than that we drink or eat too much? I'm often more bothered that people can tell that I don't remember their name than than that I didn't remember their name. It really bothers me when Peggy can see that I'm not listening than that I'm not listening. How about for you? Doesn't it really bother you more when someone knows because they can see you don't care than that you actually don't care? How about, how about when you can't find that, um, that hymn in the hymnal or don't know the words to it or when you can't find that Bible verse or you don't know that Bible verse or when you can't find that book in the Bible? I mean, doesn't it bother you a lot more that everybody can tell than that you really can't find it? Doesn't it bother you more, um, it does for me, um, that Peggy catches me being lazy than that I'm actually lazy? You know, I mean, what I'll find myself doing is I'll be watching an action movie just wasting away, enjoying it, but I'll have that remote real handy and real close so I can switch over to McNeil Lair or something like that if she comes in. You know, Because that's not as lazy as watching an action movie. More concerned about what she sees than about the fact that maybe I really am being lazy. Would it bother you more that you sleep during this message or that you're not paying attention? Or that I notice you doing that? I mean, the truth is that we're caught up much more into seem to seem and not to be, right? And thereby we trivialize the law in externalism. But it's not only that we do that by reducing the law to a spiritual makeover and Christianity to a spiritual makeover, I mean, but also that we trivialize it as well by reducing God's perfect law to a human, achievable, doable standard, to a doable human standard. And, you know, it strikes me that I'm wise enough not to do that in a lot of other areas of life, you know? I mean, I, am, I think I'm, I'm wise enough to know that um, as good as I might have played softball at times and it wasn't all that good, or as good as I might play golf or something like that, or, or you, whatever you're good at, I'm, I'm, I'm wise enough that I would not stand up beside Mark McGuire, you know, in, the, in that record incredible year that he had, or Babe Ruth or somebody like that, and say, I can do that. I can do that. Or Tiger Woods or somebody and say, "Ah, I can do that. And yet we have the audacity to stand before the law and say, I can do that. I can do that. And yet, Psalm 19 reminds us that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I was, um, uh, we were in the um, kitchen one one time, not long ago. This was uh, sometime this past year. And, um, Peggy uh, was over at the sink and she suddenly looked up and she said, "Um, Dave, your glass is in the sink. You didn't put it in the dishwasher. And behind all that, you have to understand, we have this understanding, this is a Peggy law. You put the glasses in the dishwasher. You don't wait for, her, she's not the maid to do that, and she's right. We both know that. You put the glass in the dishwasher. This is uh, an unspoken rule now that, that we all know. And, and so behind that was also, you know, um, um, that's not too much to ask, you know, and it really isn't. And, and, but I said to her, um, you know, one of the things we have in our house is ask questions, you know, So I said, to, I said to her, listen, I didn't do something bad. I actually did something good. That glass was downstairs, and it's not even my glass. I took that glass belonging to somebody else all the way up here and put it in the sink just for you. That's something good. She said, well... And she was being playful. This wasn't one of the serious arguments. She said, well, actually, that's only half good because you only went halfway. You didn't put it in the dishwasher. I said, excuse me, but I think all the way from downstairs up to the sink is far more than halfway. I think this is nine-tenths good. And without skipping a beat, she said, Dave, you broke the law. And she was kind of alluding to James too. She said, Dave, if you keep the whole law, but stumble at one point, you've broken all of it. (laughs) She goes, eh, no credit. (laughs) And I said, you're right, you're right. Galatians 3.10 says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You know, there are certain things that remind me Certain laws especially, and ask yourself what that is for you, that remind me that the law is not some doable human standard, that it drives me to Christ. The forgiveness law does that for me. James, when he talks about the responsibility of teachers. Paul, when he talks about the responsibility of husbands. I mean, those drive me to Christ and remind me I can't stand before the law arrogantly and say I can do that. But one of the things also, I think, is the tongue. And that's why we give you the tongue assignment in this course is so that it will drive us to Christ. But then I hear some people saying, you know, I'm not going to do, I'm, I'm not even going to bother. I know, I know what this game is. I know I can't keep my tongue out of control, so I'm not going to bother. And, and when you do that, you miss the whole point. Because the whole point is not that you don't try, the whole point is that you have to do it in the dependency upon the Holy Spirit. And so um, we ask you to seek that. But what would that be for you? And look, here's the thing. The gospel frees us from looking to the law to be the power for change. Christ offers that in himself and through his Spirit. Christ has won for us the Holy Spirit. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We're invited, as, as we look at this tonight, to believe the gospel. And lastly, the third point on your outline is that we unlawfully keep the law through a misplaced dependency and thereby idolizing the law. And just to round out the Trinitarianism, uh, we also wrongly relate to the law by, by turning it into our Heavenly Father or looking to it to not only be our Jesus, our Holy Spirit, but also in a way that tends to make it our, a replacement for our Heavenly Father. And when you do that, it's, it's idol worship. And that's what I do all the time. I was, we were going uh, on a cruise for our um, 20th uh, wedding anniversary, and we went to the banker to get some traveler's checks. And as we were leaving, she had found out what I do for a living. I'm a pastor and all. And, and as we were leaving, she said, well, have a great cruise. And then, and then she said, right after that, she looked at us and she said, but I know you will because you live right. I know you will because you live right. And what she was saying is, our ho- you know our hope is in our law keeping, our rule keeping, and that when you keep the rules, life will go well for you. Life will go better for you, and it becomes our subtle hope. And that is my subtle hope spiritually in a lot of ways—not just for a good cruise, but for for my life to be l- less painful, for my life to go easier and better if I'm being good. And I think that by being good, um, and that everything's going to be all right. And but and when I do that, I'm. Missing placing my hope. Instead of having my hope in my, in my Heavenly Father, my hope is in the law, and, uh, and, and thereby I confuse the two and I make an idol out of the law. It's like I'm looking to the law instead of my Father, and I'm saying Father me. You know, be the one that protects me. Be the one that provides for me. Be the one that's my authority in my life. And uh, and the law was never meant to be that. That's um, what only the Gospel, that's what only my Heavenly Father can be. And, um, when, as I do that, when I, when I look to the law and place my hope in the law, I become a slave to the law. And I, I remember um, singing one time before giving this talk, we were, we were singing um, that hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and His righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And um, as I was singing that, it became a confession for me. Because I, I, I began singing in my heart my hope is built on something less than Jesus and His righteousness. It often is. And, and one way I do that is to, is to hope in the law instead. On the law, on my performance, on my solid performance, I stand... All other ground is sinking sand. No, that's not what it's meant to be, is it? But I often live like that's what it is. Instead of on Christ alone, I stand. And so whatever I put my hope in, and as I misplace my hope, I'm going to become a slave to that. It's going to put me in bondage. It's going to keep me under its authority and under its control. And thereby, I deny what the Gospel says. The Gospel says, Romans 6.14, that I am not under law, but under grace. Galatians 3.25, that you and I are not as believers under the supervision of the law. And all that is to say is that Jesus is my Lord, not the law. The law doesn't have that authority over me. My Father is my Father. He has authority over me. He uses his law, but there's a difference between placing my hope in that law and placing my hope in him. Now, here's two ways that you're probably going to see that in your life, how you're going to feel that slavery and bondage, because most of the time it's rather unconscious. I think the first way is that the pressure will be felt at some point or another, conscious or unconscious. There'll be this sense of unlimited obligation. That as you place your hope in the law, um, you, will, you will know instinctively that there's no way that you're going to actually be able to please it. You know, the law is like Mr. Critical. The law is like Miss Perfect. And as you, ser- as you try to serve it and give it your, your heart and your soul, you're going to feel the unlimited obligation of that and the pressure of that. One, one small way that that comes out for me um, Every now and then, this doesn't happen all the time, but every now and then somebody will come up to me and you'll probably say this to me afterwards just to get my goat, but every now and then somebody will come up to me and say, good, that, you know, that good sermon, Pastor. Good sermon, no, I'm sorry. Good sermon today, Pastor. And, and, and out of those four words, good sermon today, pastor, or today, good sermon, pastor, out of those four words, which do you think is the one that really rings around in my head and stays with me? Which of those four words? Today. Today. And, you know, immediately my heart goes, T- what do you mean today? What was wrong with last week? Where have you been for the last month? You know, maybe I should go back and uh, listen to the tape or something and figure, you know, why was this week good and not some other week? Why are you coming up to me? You know, and that insecurity that that, that can be there even for me, I, again, it doesn't happen all the time. But God uses that in my life to remind me of how I make myself a slave to the laws of being a good pastor or a good speaker or a good Person, and with that comes this unlimited obligation. That's a bondage. It's a slavery to where um, um, you'll never be able to live up to it. You'll never be able to please it, and and there's this insecurity that goes with it. This pressure that will go with it. The second way that. You know, I feel that bondage, and that you might too, is that there's going to be a loss of passion, a loss of affection. I, uh, one of the things I have a passion about is, is playing golf on my days off. I mean, I just love it. It's just such a joy to play. And yet, I find that um, I lose that joy in a heartbeat, and, and, and I know when that happens. It happens when I begin to give golf an authority over me. And, it's, and it will be that way with anything. That you give yourself over to, that you place your hope in. And, uh, you know, just last week I was at the uh, driving range, the the practice range, and I had taken a lesson the week before, and I was hitting some of them really well, better than I ever had before, and I was enjoying those moments. It was a gorgeous day, and I found myself going back home miserable. And I began to reflect back on why, and the reason was that I hit twice as many bad ones as I did as I did good ones, and what was happening there was I was giving it authority over me. Uh, I was given an authority to define me, an authority to take care of me in a way that it was never meant to do. And I do that in all kinds of ways with all kinds of things, and so do you and the, so the way that we 'll feel that slavery is, is we 'll feel the pressure, but we 'll also feel the loss of joy, the loss of passion and, and, and affection and so um, once again, you know what I need to be called to is a repentance and a faith to believe the gospel instead of placing my faith in the law instead of placing my hope in the law, to believe the gospel, Galatians 4, 4-7 says this, and, and what it's reminding me of is that I have a Heavenly Father that Jesus Christ has secured a relationship with. It is my Heavenly Father that provides for me, that protects me, who's an authority over me, and nothing else is, and when anything else becomes that, it becomes an idol, including, and like everything else, an idol is something good. And the law is something good, but it can become an idol as well. Galatians 4, listen to this, just let it wash over you. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, the Gospel, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, to redeem us and liberate us under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by Your power, You would increasingly set us free from finding our hope in the law, from making the law what it was never intended to be, in order to gain for ourselves a righteousness that You have already secured for us. I pray, Father, that we would be set free so that we might passionately embrace and pursue Your law because we no longer fear it no longer needing it to be what you have already given us in Christ. And so, Father, may we grow in our, in our apprehension of what it means to be united with Christ in such a way that we could cry out with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. It's like honey in my mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.